0: Welcome to ASCP's podcast, Inside the Lab, where we discuss anything and everything that concerns today's laboratory professionals and pathologists. My name is Dr. Dan Milner, and I'm the Chief Medical Officer at the American Society for Clinical Pathology and one of your hosts.
1: Hey, everyone. My name is Kelly Swales, and I'm also one of your co-hosts. I'm an ASCP-certified medical technologist and a writer. I work in the Publications Department at ASCP. Today, we're going to be talking about hemovigilance. I'll let our guests introduce themselves.
2: Hi, I'm Chet I'm Medical Director of System Transfusion Medicine Services at Bay State Health in Springfield, Massachusetts. I'm also involved with our Regional Red Cross as the Chairman of the Medical Advisory Committee and with the AABB's Hemovigilance Committee and serving as a subject matter expert in hemovigilance for some initiatives by the
3: FDA. Hi, my name is Lynn O'Kern. I'm the transfusion safety officer at Bay State Medical Center. I'm also ASCP uh, certified as a medical technologist. I worked in this role for approximately 10 years, and prior to that, I um, spent many years in the quality department.
4: Hi, I'm Carl Stein. I am the lab supervisor uh, at One Blood Incorporated. We operate as a uh, blood center primarily, but also my department uh, deals with uh, hospital-based transfusion services as well as immunohematology reference labs. Um, I work at a hospital-based transfusion service here in Tampa, Florida, St. Joseph's Hospital. Uh, I've been with One Blood for about eight years. I am a BBASCPCM. Well, thank you all so much for joining us.
1: Yeah, thanks everyone for joining us. Um, Before we actually kind of get started on questions, I've got a little bit of housekeeping to get out of the way. CME and CMLE will be available for listening to this podcast in the ASCP store. The American Society for Clinical Pathology is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education to provide, you guessed it, continuing medical education for physicians. ASCP designates this enduring material for a maximum of one AMA PRA Category 1 credit, Physicians should only claim the credit commensurate with your extent of their participation in the activity. All right, great. Well, now that that's out of the way, let's get going. So my first question is kind of within the practice of transfusion medicine, the concept of hemovigilance refers to the monitoring of transfusion reactions of any type at a national level in a big data reporting system. Can you guys kind of elaborate on this and you know, explain it a little bit more?
2: Okay, Kelly. Well, I think that's a good starting off point. But what I would add very quickly is that this uh, extends well beyond transfusion reaction monitoring and that it really is uh, part of a larger system of what uh, has been referred to as really culture of safety. And the hemovigilance concept has been around in transfusion medicine for decades, really uh, getting a kickstart, if you will formally outside the United States with national hemovigilance networks there, but uh, more recently here in the United States with a voluntary network. This concept of hemovigilance can be applied, I think, locally at a hospital's level, regionally, nationally, and as I said, internationally.
0: Lynn?
3: I'd like to add that the hemovigilance reporting system creates a systematic method to monitor reactions with the goal of reducing morbidity and mortality, and also identifying emerging complications and uh, rising pathogens. So being part of this large group, as we have been for many years, uh, has been beneficial, and we're proud to be part of that.
0: Carl?
4: Yeah, and as um, Chet stated, you know, we're not just talking about transfusion reactions. It's It's from the beginning of the collection process, so donor, donor reactions as well, whether it's, uh, you know, a disease process or, you know, what have you. There's a lot from start to end uh, that's involved in it. And, you know, the quality information, the information that we, we get from this really can drive process changes and improvements, you know, moving forward.
5: Thank you so much, because I knew it was about transfusion reactions, and now I see that it's really the whole spectrum, which is exciting, but actually is adding, again, to the complexity of it. And I think one of the challenges with reporting anything, but especially for reporting human vigilance, is the complexity of the data collection process. So what has your laboratory done, or have you seen other laboratories do to combat this complexity to be successful with your reporting?
2: Here at Bay State, we uh, have been involved with our hemovigilance activities for probably close to a quarter of a century, well before the national system became available to us. And as I mentioned earlier, this is impartial to that culture of safety perspective. So the way that we would document episodes of things happening on the transfusion service or outside it, has evolved as we've learned more and delved deeper into uh, investigations of this and clearly also the evolution of our investigations of suspected transfusion reactions both with the depth of investigations that we perform compared to when I first got to Bay State 29 years ago and the documentation of that. It is complex as you say, and I'll let Lynn mention something about that. She could maybe touch on the use of databases, checklists, and things like that.
3: Sure. We found very early on that the amount of data that is needed for reporting is complex, And in order to lessen the burden, we took some of our standard forms that staff is completing at the time an event occurs, either an episode or a transfusion reaction, and we added many of the required elements of the NHSN reporting system so that when staff was in there doing their investigation anyway, they were just acquiring this data and documenting it to make it easier in the end. And actually adding those extra elements, staff is already looking at the tag, at the label, no extra work for them, and it provided a lot of extra benefit on the reporting end. As Dr. Ray said, we have extensive databases that we keep all of our transfusion reaction and episode data in, and at the time of reporting, I often go back and go into those databases and look for additional comments that maybe the residents documented at that time. especially when I'm looking for trying to determine imputability. The residents also add graphic representation of various vital sign values over time. So you can see, was this the only rise in temperature? It will be an example. Was this the only rise in temperature during that three-day period? Was that the only thing that rise in temperature associated with transfusion? So we have a lot of elements that I can go back and look at to determine how I'm going to classify a reaction.
1: So I'm listening to all of this and because I'm a former bench tech, all I hear is like, wow, this is a whole lot of work for not many people to do. I mean, we always talk about within the industry and we've mentioned it on our our podcast several times that historically speaking, our workforce is getting smaller and smaller and we, we don't have as many, we just don't have as many bodies to do the extra work that this demands. Have you guys found like maybe some innovative workforce approaches to kind of, kind of help with this? Or how are you mitigating the obvious kind of burden that's, that's on the workforce?
2: Well, I guess the workforce can be looked at from a number of different settings. Those staff members on the transfusion service and then those outside the transfusion uh, service, specifically nurses and physicians who are in at the bedside directly taking care of the patient. Uh, we're sensitive to all those, and very early on, we partnered and formed alliances, key critical ones, with nursing services, not just at our main hospital here, but our community hospitals that we serve. And getting feedback from them, as well as our staff and our own experiences with this has led, as I said, to evolutions in the way we perform certain types of investigations, whether it's for a transfusion reaction or an episode, as well as the documentation of that. One of the things that we quickly saw as an opportunity was presented to us back in 2007 by our institution, where they asked us uh, if we would be interested in developing an electronic tab for our uh, documentation of the blood transfusion process. We jumped on this on our transfusion committee and working with nurses IT folks and our own staff here developed that we've continued to evolve it it was implemented in 2010 it serves as a very strong foundation for us not only to perform a retrospective analyses of chemotherapy but real-time analysis provided that the individuals are putting the um, Vital signs, for example, and other requested information into the electronic tab. I can sit here at my computer, just like I'm doing now, and I can go into a patient's chart. And if that blood was released just a half hour or so ago, I can go in there to the electronic tab and see what the vital signs are and whether they've clicked off the checklist as appropriate for different things. And I can also bring data in from the greater network of our hospital patient computer system over here to look at this in a track and trend way with uh, graphic details. That can be done real time. It can be done retrospectively. And these are all types of things which have led us to enhance the safety and make changes with regard to the way we provide uh, blood products at our hospitals. Maybe Lynn, may want to say something Uh, regarding that and our uh, TACO mitigation strategies.
6: One of the things we have done that has really empowered staff is we have come up with a provisional diagnosis that our goal is to get out within 90 minutes of the reaction being called. And in order to determine, we have two categories for this provisional diagnosis, either non-hemolytic or potential transfusion-associated circulatory overload. And in order to meet that criteria, staff is really scrutinizing the vital signs and paying very close attention to things like tachycardia and pulse pressure changes that isn't normally part of what a laboratory would be doing when they're investigating a transfusion reaction. And I think that this is really engaged staff. And so transfusion reactions, although they become more complex, the staff is gratified by being the one that's determining whether reflex testing should be performed.
2: We actually published an article in Transfusion on this several years ago. I think I um, shared it with you folks, and you can share that with the rest of the folks if they're interested on that. It goes into a lot more detail on on some of these things.
5: Thank Carl.
4: Yeah and then the importance of the relationship with nursing with IT to be able to work on these things is so important if you're having, you know, monthly meetings and you're able you have already have a medium to be able to to discuss these topics. So when something does come up that oh well, you know, you know, it's very fluid. You're always looking to improve, you're always coming across situations where you can improve a system with one blood because we are various uh, labs throughout Florida, North Carolina, um the Southeast We have a computer system that we all use and prior to doing any testing, we're able to look up and not just that single labs, you know, the patients that have gone to that single labs, but throughout that entire network. So we're able to see these patients and and their reactions, their antibody antigen profiles at my last uh, position at a hospital here in Tampa, Tampa General Hospital, we were able to uh, have an interface between our own computer system and the EMR within the hospital. So we can have that data, you know, you know, exactly the unit number what attributes were on that unit that, you know, were, were transfused to the patient. That went to the real time, like Chet said, that, you know, you can see that immediately and you can follow up on things easier when you have that relationship with nursing, with IT to bring those systems together.
5: Excellent. Thanks. We recognize, as Kelly was saying, that workforce shortages are abound, but it sounds like a lot of the solutions that your teams have come up with are related to innovation and technology and collaboration, um, which are obviously good solutions when you don't have enough people, so bravo for that. I think one of the interesting things from my perspective is that transfusion medicine services support small community hospitals up through very complex tertiary care hospitals. I remember my days as a blood bank resident when they would be doing a liver transplant at MGH and we would be on blood shortage for the next 48 hours. And any of them could have a patient with an adverse reaction. But is there a relationship between the breadth of services that are offered by a center and the value of homovigilance participation? In other words, should everyone provide data or is there a surveillance subset of providers that's actually valuable for informing the community?
2: My opinion is that everybody should be providing the data, or at least they should be uh, acquiring it and looking at it within the context of their own settings. Having said that, because the system here in the United States at a national level is voluntary, there is some heterogeneity over the years with regard to number of participants, individuals who may have dropped out from there. Uh, that's in contrast to some other Uh, National hemovigilance systems, for example, in Europe, where it's mandatory for uh, hospitals to be providing this data. It doesn't mean that this is an inferior system in the United States. It just means that it gets a little more difficult, I think, to interpret some of the data over time when we have this. And I think whether an individual institution elects to contribute data into a bigger network or to look at it within their own hospital system or even at their own institution level. As I mentioned earlier, this is part of the culture of safety. And when approached in uh, the right manner, this does improve blood transfusion safety. There's
6: no doubt in my mind. Glenn? We did encounter, because we are a health system and we have many small facilities, That we did encounter that the burden is on the larger side for a small facility that may not have reactions on a regular basis. Therefore, the learning curve is kind of steep. So very early on, as in the conception, when we brought on participating, I was the method through by which they participated. So I worked with them to gather extra information that wasn't available. And then actually over time, we folded their reactions just into our own because having a dual system where they didn't have the support to maintain it, it just made more sense to be just treated like they were a reaction of our own. It's worked for us. And then when we go to the transfusion committee meetings for these individual hospitals, we're able to provide the data where they're compared to other small facilities. So they saw the benefit without having to do the work really.
0: Thanks so much. Those, those, that's really interesting, Lynn, to hear how you folded in the community hospital setting. So it sounds like, you know, for example, hemovigilance. as, I'm not saying like as a contract or anything, but providing hemovigilance services to other s- facilities may be something that's valuable for tertiary care, and maybe even residents can be involved, et cetera, to help with that. Um, that sounds like a really great approach.
2: Residents and fellows are critically important if you have them to teach them that. This is uh, part and parcel to the practice of pathology, transfusion medicine in the 21st century. So engaging your residents, if you're fortunate enough to have that, and we have a super group that we've worked with over the years. I think is is something that uh, needs to be pointed out as well.
4: And I can actually add to I can add to that to um, Tampa General the. You know, we get the uh, pathology residents and and residents and fellows that come through there, and they come and in, into our lab, and they spend a day with me, and we talk about some of these things, some of the quality systems that we have to be able to give them some more of that background knowledge. Not just that, but just just transfusion medicine in general too, so they can so they can see it real time and see how the the workflow is and what's going to happen. You know, if they in the future, if they ever have to call down. And talk to us. They already have that background information, which I think is is vital. Any training or any knowledge that 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 can be gained is going to be beneficial for everybody.
0: In that same vein, are there currently any online educational modules or online resources for residents that they can work through so they can kind of become a little mini expert in how to approach hemovigilance? Is that something that's been developed?
6: NHSN does have some learning modules. We also educate our residents to use the
2: blood bank guide? I can tell you, Dan, that I had mentioned about the National Hemovigilance Network here in the United States. The Commonwealth of Massachusetts is unique among the 50 states in that it has mandated reporting of uh, transfusion data to the uh, Department of Public Health in Boston. And this has been in place by state statute for uh, many years, I think going back at least to the 1960s. And I don't know, let's see, uh, probably about 10, 12 years ago, uh, discussions occurring within the regional medical advisory committee for our uh, main blood supplier here, the American Red Cross committee members engaged with colleagues from the epidemiology branch of the uh, Massachusetts Department of Public Health. Initially, they were involved from an infectious disease transmission perspective with blood products. But as time went on, this uh, also evolved into this concept, as I mentioned, with hemovigilance, a very active one. And that has been uh, championed by the uh, the folks in uh, the uh, mass DPH. The provision of data coming out of that group now is tremendous. I'll let Lynn say something about that, how we use it here in our hospitals. But one of the things that I did want to mention is that they did put educational material, which I believe is on their website also. So that uh, speaks somewhat to
6: your uh, earlier point that you brought up. So the Massachusetts Department of Public Health created a group for the Massachusetts hospitals within the NHSN. And since we are part of a group, they then can analyze and look at our data and provide it back to us. So when you're just participating as an individual, all you see in NHSN is your own data. When you're part of a group, you can see all data. And because they have the ability to do a high level analytics, we're able to see comparisons by bed size group, so that they broke us up into three different group sizes. They look at all aspects, and then when they present it, they ask us, what else would you like to see? And then we take that back to each of the community hospitals, and we analyze it ourselves. We can see some trends that we don't like. One of them that we're working on ourselves is that we at Bay State Medical Center have a high rate of cryoprecipitate wastage. And until you see where you stand with the rest of the state, you think, well, it's high, but it's not that bad. Well, when we saw that we're the worst, we want to improve. So we find that being part of that group very, very beneficial.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I kind of want to circle back a little bit and touch on something that Chet said earlier about how human vigilance is going to be, basically how transfusion medicine is, is conducted in the 21st century, right? Like this is the future of the specialty. So I guess my my question becomes, Do you guys foresee a future where where there's going to be like accreditation or or billing implications for laboratories that maybe don't participate in hemovigilance? Uh,
2: That's an interesting question, Kelly. I don't know what the answer is to that, but I do believe as time goes on, especially in the current pandemic that we're in, the concept of surveillance is going to take on uh, increasing importance and regulatory as well as uh, accrediting bodies may look at that and say, uh, yes, uh, this is something that people need to engage with. The benefits outweigh the costs, if you will, uh, with that.
5: So, so just as a follow-up, while, while Lynn and Carl
0: are maybe considering a, a response to that question, from the point of view, let's just take a, a cr- concrete example, Chad. So cap checklist for accreditation of the blood bank. How much of the hemovigilance work that you do in the blood bank is reflected currently in checklist items? And do you see, foresee that there could easily be checklist items added, or is that something that you don't think is going to happen in the near future?
2: Well, I think within cap checklist there's a um, an emphasis on uh, the transfusion reaction evaluations monitoring like that, which I think is very good. there's also uh on that checklist items related to uh, the donor centers and for hospital blood banks, clearly, and also uh, I think for an area which is sometimes uh forgotten with hemovigilance and I think has a tremendous opportunity to have inroads made into that in therapeutic apheresis Mm -hmm. and looking at how many procedures may be performed, what are some of the adverse outcomes. And as far as I know, there have been attempts off and on through the years internationally to try and even set up like little registries and what have you, but nothing to the extent uh, in that area that I've seen for the traditional transfusion medicine type of uh, activities. So I do think that uh, this is going to be
5: an evolving area. So let me let me ask the question in, in a different way. If you are actively doing hemovigilance reporting, would you have an easier time with checklists for CAP, for example, for accreditation for the blood bank? I guess that's the better way to ask the question.
2: Well, I would think so. Of course, it would depend on how the folks at CAP set up their checklist, right, with that. But if it's harmonized, especially if there's some type of national collection mandate or what have you that goes in with that, as well as the potential for automated collection of data, then um, I think that would accelerate any movement towards having some of these requirements that Kelly mentioned earlier coming about, to be honest with you. Carl?
4: I think we're really just maybe scratching the surface here with, with a lot of this because, and as we've seen, and I you know as fluid, as I've seen over this past year how fluid things can change, you know? So, and as Lynn stated, even reducing... You know cryo wastage. With us here, we made a big emphasis on reducing platelet wastage. Well, over the past year, you know, maybe some places, some health systems didn't do as great because of because of what's happened. And there, there might be a more of an impetus for looking at solutions that not just save costs, but obviously, you know, the culture of safety. You know, what we're trying to do ultimately, we're trying to provide the safest blood possible for our patients, and that is at the that's at the core of of what we do the more quality data that we can get, I think if, if more of that happens, I think it could really be a catalyst to kind of really take things off and go in a direction where, yeah, we're, you know, here we are, you know, 10 years from now, it might be totally different. We might look back like, wow, look at, look at how little we did back 10 years ago. <laughs> right. And, and, you know, we'll see. And, you know, cause I think this is uh, as, you know, one of the, like the, the pillars of, uh, of what we do and, 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 And transfusion medicine. This is one of them. Maybe molecular biology, another one. Where you know, this is the future of where we're gonna where we're gonna go. Let's work smarter, not harder. Let's make the let's have these blood products for our patients be better uh, and safer.
5: Thanks, Kelly. Did you have a comment?
1: If there's one thing that's a constant in the laboratory professions, it's change. Right. So we always have to like not just keep up, but be on the forefront of some of these things.
6: The only thing I wanted to add is if you look at The CAP checklists over time, the evidence of meeting that checklist item has grown and including many, many more safety measures and hemovigilance type aspects. And it could be something as basic as reporting of a transfusion reaction must be in a timely fashion or, you know, that there must be a process in place to reduce the mistransfusion in the non-emergent transfusion. Like they're really, it's getting very specific. And then, if you look at the note there, it goes on for you know a couple of paragraphs, so that they're really leading the way in patient safety initiatives. that's, that's my opinion.
0: so so digging into your example, Lynn, of when you were benchmarking against your other hospitals and you realized that your cryoprecipitate waste was an issue. Can you give us an example where the hemovigilance reporting, maybe at a larger level, not necessarily for an individual hospital, but at a larger level, has led to, for example, a change in policy? Or a change in care models, and it could be within or even outside of the US if you wanted to do that. I think that would be really important for our listeners to hear to understand why it's so important to contribute to this. Chet?
2: Yeah, we can comment on that. And I think one of the most outstanding ones is the uh, lessons that we learned with uh, transfusion related acute lung injury or trolley mitigation. And it was through the efforts of our international colleagues over time. In the collection of data and then analysis of it, that led to realizations that multiparous females as uh, blood donors were uh, more often associated with this type of outcome. I don't have to belabor the point with the with the group here. I'm sure they they know all the things that happened. Uh, I think when was that? Since 2008 or something uh, along those lines. And that, I know, is a tremendous safety enhancement. I can recall from my earlier uh, training years, as well as in practice, when I was at the bedside during an apheresis procedure for a TTP patient, and we were transfusing FFP, and the patient had a severe pulmonary uh, uh, reaction. Uh, these things can be um, quite scary, not just for the patient, but for the practitioners. And they can also be lethal. So to see the inroads that have been made because of something like uh, examination of data that was acquired, this is amazing.
5: And, and I think from an epidemiology point of view, Trolley is such a good example because it isn't happening you know, 100 times a day in one place. It's really happening right. all over. You need to have all of that data in one place to say, where are the commonalities here? How do we solve this problem? you can't do that without, you know, a registry of, of all that data. I think it's really crucial. Lynn?
6: I think I have another example. Here in Massachusetts, for years, we were reporting a couple of times a year, transfusion transmitted infections of Babesia. We're one hospital. We see it a couple of times a year and we think, oh, this is a shame. But then when various other hospitals in our geographic region were also finding the same thing. It eventually it led to testing of blood donors for babesia it, it took a few years but we could count on a few cases and you know some eminent deaths associated with babesia
0: yeah great example as as a i don't say former but as an infectious disease pathologist i think um, babesiosis in new england as being someone interested in parasitology was It was exciting, but also very terrible because not only was it the risk of splenic rupture and transfusion related, which you never wanted to have that on your ledger, but there's also the fact that there are two other infections that can be transmitted by the same tick and you can have triple infections. And yeah, it's really great that the community has embraced that and and done that testing because it's much better for the patient not to get (laughs) Babesia-infected transfusion, obviously, but more importantly, you wouldn't have known to do that, as you said, unless you had all of this, all this data.
4: From... My organization, and because we, we, we span over, I guess it's 14, 15 labs over multiple states, and we have this nice pool of patients that we can search that I spoke about earlier. And another nice thing too, is the, the hospital I work for now is their own healthcare system where there are nine hospitals. And then now that adds into the, on top of the 14, 15 before, even something as simple as how to look up a patient first name, last name, date of birth. Oh, well, you know, with female patients, it's also, well, search a partial first name and a date of birth because their last name obviously could have changed before. And then now you're you're finding these previous patient files that have, you know, previous transfusion reactions on them, or a patient has multiple antibodies or autoantibodies. And, and now instead of just, oh, you know, that might've been, you know, the antibodies and autoantibodies might've been from, you know, 15, 20 years ago. And now you have that information because you just, we were able to manipulate how we, how we look up certain patients, certain ways. And now we have that data so we can provide the best, you know, the best uh, blood possible.
0: Yeah, certainly data access and and collaboration and integration of systems. I always get weird looks from people when I say this, but I don't understand why, you know, medical records can't be more openly available in a secured system, right? I mean, it's just like, it doesn't make any sense to me that if I live in Maine and I go to Boston for treatment, it's like an act of Congress, literally to get my records to that person when they're just trying to help me, you know, it's not like they're trying to do anything bad. So I think when you have systems like that, I know, for example, in Boston, um, you watched with wonder as the partners healthcare system installed Epic and SunQuest on like all their 40 or 50 institutions and now they have the ability to do exactly what what Carl is describing is is you know check that safety and and we have to recognize the value of that for patient safety uh, when we think about collaboration.
1: Yeah Carl do you have you have something dad?
4: Yeah and I just want to give an an example and, and just go into more detail too but also as I was kind of preparing for this and and thinking about things One of the things that we might see, you know, if anything like that can happen in the future and maybe 10 years from now, that'll be one of the things we talk about is that there's more integration with computer systems like that, uh, where we can find those things. Because being here in Florida, there's a lot of people that either retire down here that come from the Northeast or they come down here for three, four, five, six months out of the year. We had a patient that, you know, mentioned to the nurse that, oh, I get special platelets. And then the nurse calls us down in the blood bank and and they say, oh, a patient just said, you know, they, they get special platelets. Now, luckily the patient had already been at the hospital for two days. They already had records from a hospital in Pennsylvania already on the file. But usually that takes, sometimes it takes over 24 hours to actually get those records faxed and scanned into the EMR and all that stuff. There's a lag time there. Luckily in this case, we I already had them, but then when I'm looking in there, I see oh, there's a previous diagnosis of you know post-transfusion purpura there on the file, and now I'm calling that that lab at that hospital in Pennsylvania and asking for for more information. And oh, did you send out you know do you have a molecular report? Oh yeah, you do. You sent that out already. There it is. And then you know and now I'm requesting from our own you know IRL I'm requesting HPA1A platelets for this patient. But it could have been very different if if those records weren't there. If you know if they needed a transfusion, you know, that first day that they were there, we might have just given out anything and you know who knows what would have happened. So this, you know, the integration of systems and you know, we see it in our in our current organization and as Chet and Lynn have talked about too, the benefits of that. And I'm hoping that in the future that we can we can get to a point where we have more of that on a national scale.
1: Well, guys, I kind of want to wrap up here with one last question. Um, Just kind of could you give advice to laboratories who maybe aren't doing hemovigilance yet, but, you know, kind of want to go down that path and want to start integrating this into their work processes? Do you have any advice for them?
6: I guess I would start by saying that NHSN just this year created an overview for CEU credits. So it's a a learning module that tests you as you go. So that gives you a nice overview. And then they have individual modules that are little videos on the step-by-step process. So that would be where I would direct them to start. And then just being able to contribute to something greater than your own facility is a really nice feature. We adopted it very early on because we just wanted to be part of this new development and uh, the data. I
2: would say take advantage of uh, the resources that have been put out there, as Lynn said, but also with some of the other professional organizations, including ABB, CAP, as we said, and clearly ASCP, with that, as well as the primary and secondary literature that is burgeoning, if you will, now in various facets of this, contributed by folks here in the United States, as well as uh, from around the globe, And that the bottom line, as far as I'm concerned, what I've told my staff and and residents over the years is, when we look at this, you have to picture either yourself or a loved one at the receiving end of that blood product. Mm -hmm. And how do you feel about that? And have we done everything possible to ensure that we're giving the best care for uh, ourselves or our loved ones if we were on the receiving end of that?
4: Carl? Uh-huh. Yeah. And what I like to tell my trainees here in the in the lab and, and other team members that I work with, good is not good enough. We need to be great. That's what the patients deserve, is great, is great care. It can be easy to uh, lose perspective because you know you you see just papers and samples a lot of times in the lab and you can lose that perspective very easily. And as far as places to start, as far as hemovigilance goes. The, I believe the previous edition of the AABB technical manual was the first time they, they had a chapter on hemovigilance. That's a place to start. Or even really, congratulations, you're starting right now because you're you're on this podcast, right? You know, each lab probably has a technical manual there, but it really should have one available. Uh, if you have downtime, pick it up and read it. And each year or each edition that comes out of that, I'm sure there's going to be, you know, there's more and more that's going to go into it. But the patients, ultimately, we're trying to give the safest blood to them and, and the patients deserve great care and this is a is a huge component in that.
1: The best time to have planted a tree was 20 years ago, but the next best time is today. You can start today. It's okay. <laughs>
0: This is such an exciting topic for our education committee that um, at our annual meeting this year in 2021 in Boston, we will have a session um, on this. And I think actually one or more of you may even be involved with that, but we're hoping to actually have someone from the UK to talk about their programs as well. I think that the interest is there, but if there is a module that's needed for education for residents, you know that's something certainly that we can, we can work on and, and try to get together for sure. And and thanks so much for all of your comments about patients and and safety. You know, at ASCP, we are a patient-centered organization. Patients are at the center of everything we do. And I think that this is just a perfect example of of a program that takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of energy. But at the end of the day, it's what's best for the patients. And that's that's really why we should do it. Um, So thank you all so much for participating. This has been extremely interesting and a really wonderful discussion. I've learned a ton.
2: But we really appreciate uh you guys inviting us to uh to participate in this and Absolutely in, you know, what Carl's group down there does as well. So uh I think the future looks bright, if you will.
1: Me too. I, I also want to take this opportunity to remind our listeners to one, tell your friends about this podcast and two, make sure and subscribe to our podcast through your favorite podcast aggregator.
0: And don't forget that you can receive CME or CMLE credit for listening to our podcast by looking for Inside the Lab in the ASCP store or on our website, www.ascp.org.
5: Thank you and talk to you next time.